Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John, Rich, and Kyle. Rich and I are both U.S. Marines, and the opinions expressed on the cast are those of the host, not official military policy. And the opinions that I express are my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses that I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, we have a special guest, Juliet Calvin, Commanding Officer, 1st Network Battalion. Thanks for coming on the cast. Could you give us a quick intro? Sure. So my name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Juliet Calvin, and I was the first battalion commander stood up um, responsible for the information networks that support the warfighter in the Western region. Awesome. And, and again, thanks for coming on the cast. So, so right off the bat here, you are the very first commander of a network battalion, a relatively new concept, and you are the, taking the first of three battalions that are stood up. Ed Debish, who was on here on the previous cast, came on uh, and, and talked about the 05 commanders that he has under him, uh, of which you are one. Uh, so if you could just give the audience a quick, what is a network battalion? What does it do? And what need did they address by coming about? And, and how do they fit in the big picture? Great questions. Um, so first, I want to start out with how the network battalions came about. So previously, kind of in the, the immature days of how we looked at cyber, we didn't really look at it as that dynamic maneuver war space where an adversary and our opponent could really take advantage of critical information that's being passed and supporting the warfighter. Um, so as the Marine Corps looked at it, the MROC committee, which is all of the senior general officers in the Marine Corps, they came together and they decided that in order to best support the warfighter, they were going to take the line of effort of cyberspace operations and really nest it truly down in that command and control model where you have a singular commander responsible for the execution, prioritization, defense, and security of cyberspace operations. Um, it really takes it from removing it as how it was looked at previously as a service, like you would Cox Cable Company um, or some sort of internet company providing just a, a very solid transport path. And they said, no, this is a dynamic space that we're going to have to approach with a warfighter mindset not just from a garrison service mindset. And this all nests well with Lieutenant General Reynolds' um, concepts and methods that she has employed for the information environment with cyber operations being a very important component of how we look at information environment. All right. So we have, a, we have essentially IT operations and security nested under uh, one single commander, uh, commanding general of Marfor Cyber. Um, and then obviously, as, as you mentioned, keeping in line with uh, the policies uh, set forth by uh, the Deputy Commandant for Information, uh, Lieutenant General Reynolds. Um, do you think that the pandemic had any bearing or any change on activating your battalion as not only did you get the opportunity to be the first one, so you know you get to stumble through all the initial mistakes of, of setting up this whole new organization, uh, you get to do so during a pandemic. Um, did the double new uh, make things more challenging for you or was, was this an extra opportunity, uh, another feather in the cap? So that's a really interesting question because the genesis of the network battalion standing up it preceded the pandemic, but the timing in which the unit was activated happened at exactly the same time that it started. So I received my orders. The MROC decision came in November of 2019 that said, we are going to activate network battalions to support 
cyberspace operations for the warfighter in each region. And then I was supposed to activate on April 4th, um, but as you know, the pandemic occurred in roughly March timeframe. So everything happened between November and December. That's when I got my slating and appointment from Headquarters Marine Corps saying that I would be the commander. Um, I was still working in one MEF G6 operations as the operations officer when that happened. And I had roughly um, 30 days when I could really focus on the network battalion to get things set up and prepared for execution to activate. But during that 30 days is when the pandemic hit and when I was required to really continue that evolution. Um, so there were a number of fronts where it made it difficult to do that in terms of not being able to meet people face-to-face, um, in terms of administrative support being uh, set back in timeframe because personnel were operating remotely and still figuring out how to do that. Um, but in other ways, it also made it a huge advantage because here I had this entire region so seven different base posts and stations, all with different missions, um, all separated by geographic terrain with workforces that had never functioned together before. And I had to make them a cohesive team. And during the time that we were all required to be working from our homes, not going into the workforce. So in some avenues, we use that to our advantage and we use technology to overcome those geographic barriers, uh, Microsoft Teams. So along with the same standup of the network battalion, we were also transitioning into the cloud supporting the Office 365 transition for the Marine Corps in the Western region. Yeah, that, that sounds like an awful lot of complexity to manage uh, all, <laughs> all at the same time. Uh, a, a quick follow up on that. Uh, you know, the Marine Corps, I think, puts a premium on in-person and up close and personal, whether, you know, we... We describe our counseling sessions as kneecap to kneecap counseling sessions, essentially like you sit right next to a person and you know, describe their performance. And we also have the, the kind of joking term LWBA, that's uh, leadership by walking around. Um, since both of those things were essentially, both of those options were completely ripped away from you, would you be able to share kind of on the interpersonal side how you, how you dealt with not being able to do the thing you were used to doing? What did you personally do to kind of, especially as a commander, because the, the most right. you're, you're not hands on the keyboard, uh, plugging and chugging on routers or servers. You know, your your biggest impact is on the interpersonal level, making sure things are communicated, following up. Like, how did you manage with all your traditional tools being taken from you? So another great question, um, John, and I'll I'll tell you that one of the mantras that I tell my battalion are mission first, people always. Uh, mission first people always really with getting to that individual level to support that individual. I'll share with you that at the same time that all these things were happening, I had two very close family members of mine that we lost to suicide within 13 days of each other. That was December 10th and uh, December 20th of 2019. Um, both of those individuals, one was my brother-in-law, who had been my brother-in-law of 32 years, um, and the other was my nephew, who was just uh, 22 years old at the time when we lost him to suicide. Um, taking care of people is something that, for me as a commander, it supersedes every requirement. 
um, and having experienced firsthand the challenges with individuals when they're struggling, either with mental health or with real life issues that are impacting them, um, I take to heart very personally. So each individual member of the workforce, while I couldn't necessarily go and meet them in person, uh, it's not unusual for any of them, whether it's a contractor or a federal civilian employee or a Marine, to get a Teams phone call from me um, where I have my camera turned on, I have them exposed to my home living environment, and I'm talking to them from, from me to you. You know, it's, it's directly to the individual. And that really was a, a very, that's something that I take seriously every single day. So I make sure it's on my daily battle rhythm reach out to two individuals in the workforce, have a conversation with them that has nothing to do with work and has everything to do with them as the individual. And those are the ways that I really keep connected with them because usually by building that foundational personal relationship uh, with the members of your unit, you really get to build upon that to allow them to grow as individuals um, and bring new ideas to the table and feel part of a team. Feeling part of a team is so important to the battalion effort. And I feel like that resonates a lot with what we're seeing in the civilian sector also around, you know, proper work-life balance and feeling kind of just like a robot or like you're forgotten at home on your computer screen and just being some microscopic cog and some big wheel that you don't get a chance to see because you're not in an office or at the battalion or, you know, reporting in every day and doing all those things. And I, I wanted to ask you a specific question about training because you stood up this brand new unit right? Like collected people in the middle of a pandemic who are working from home. How do you handle getting time on the trigger or time under the barbell or, you know, choose the crappy metaphor that we want to use to describe this, but how do you manage to get this brand new group of people who've never worked together before to actually train and get better at their jobs in order to accomplish your mission? Another great question. So training is one of my four pillars um, that I use to task organize my battalion. Previous to the network battalion standing up, the majority of IT work was done by the federal civilian employees, and many of them have decades of experience in IT and specifically on their networks. Then we look at the green suit component of that, and the Marines were primarily made up of a, I'll call it a Templone program, the FAP program. So they would be assigned to their base or to the installation for periods of 12 months, and they weren't utilized as an IT workforce because it was largely undervalued what the training capability of the individual Marine is. I'll tell you the Commandant's initiatives with force modernization, doing more with less, training to higher grades of technical proficiency, it's really what I levied to my battalion as a required must do. So as soon as they came to me, if you are a PFC uh, just out of school, you're going straight over to my end user services section, and you're going to start building your foundational understanding of the network at that desktop level. So what is the desktop level required to support? And then as you graduate in maturity and we're proceeding along in your professional maturity, I'm graduating you to the watch floor. Um, where I have you working at the networking layer. And that comes generally when you're an NCO, when you've been able to complete CCNA requirements. Um, so I nest the civilian IT workforce criteria um, and their training tools, largely with the way that I approach my Marines. And then I keep that blended throughout. 
So there's one training requirement. You know, if you want permissions to get on the network at the very lowest level, then yeah, you must be this tall to ride the ride. Exactly. And it yep. graduates. And and that also came with me pulling away permissions from individuals that didn't have the proper training. Um, and that was not there were folks that were very unhappy about that. I'm sure you hurt some feelings on that one. Absolutely. I, I hurt some feelings. I still have some hurt feelings out there. Um, hey, that's okay. Go get training. Update your certs and you'll get your permissions back, right? Exactly. Or if you haven't gotten your certs and you've just been operating um, because you've been doing over-the-shoulder or on-the-job training, that's not going to cut it. We're going to hold you to standard. That same standard nope. is going to be used throughout um, and also for permissions and who I let on the network, not granting them to individuals that I don't have command and control over. So that's very important to me to maintain that preservation there. Yeah. So Juliet, it's Rich. Uh, I just want to ask you a quick question there because one, I just want to say two things. One, I applaud you for your just engagement on the interpersonal level. Um, there's a great book out there called Leading Geeks, which I, I read as soon as I got to Amazon because my engineers were like, hey, you're a Marine you might come over the top. Why don't you read this book first? Uh, so, but, but it all comes down to, you know, personally engaging. So one, I'll just give you kudos for that. And then the second thing is the actual question. So, um, you know, holding people to standard in, in the business that John and I are working on uh, right now, we get a lot of untrained folks that are sent to us. Right. And then we have to like, while they're building the plane, they have to train to learn how to build the plane. Um, and so, We've been trying to balance this really well. So when it comes to that, holding people to standard, can you talk about just in maybe a, a touch more detail, like, do you have individual training programs that like they snap into and then they execute and then they're evaluated by a trainer? Like, what's your feedback mechanism to say, not only has this guy or gal taken the course, but they're qualified to my standard as the commander? And if I could add one thing in there. And how much of that onus do you put on the individuals and how much do you put on their supervisors? Yeah, both great questions. Um, I'll tell you that I use the cybersecurity workforce um, IT standards primarily for my benchmark of how I execute um, allowing somebody to have permissions. So I nest with the service level model of the cybersecurity workforce standards um, for SEC plus, NET plus, A plus, CCNA. And I, I take a little bit of a combination from the um, professional training standards. Like, uh, for instance, when you go to a NCO level supervisor course out at McSess, you're required to have CCNA models, uh, modes one through three completed before you go to that, right? So I kind of take those same metrics and I apply them across the board. Uh, when a Marine comes to me and they first come out from the schoolhouse, they get two mentors. So they get a Marine mentor that's working on their professional development as a warfighter. And then they get a civilian mentor that's mentoring them along with their trade skill, you know, with that technical I love this craft. Idea. Yes. So they have kind of that two pronged system of touch points. And depending on the Marines, sometimes they resonate more with the green suit side that's fostering along that warfighter group. And sometimes they align better with that civilian that has been dedicated in their craft for a good amount of time. And my civilians have a very strong impact on the growth and development of the Marines. But here's the really important part of that. It's 
using them to get trained up to that higher level of technical capability where I am now making them capable of providing a replacement in some sort of remote area where I can't send that civilian, that federal civilian. So I'm building my capability by building a greater foundation upon which every single member of the battalion is built. And I can't just take Marines out of McSess and put them on the network and expect them to have platform level systems or applications level experience. I've got to start them at the ground layer with the end user services, that desktop device, the most fundamental component, and then build them along in their technical capability. Did that answer the question? I don't know. Yeah. Did I miss some of that? Oh, no, no. That that absolutely uh, answered the question. And we actually, uh, I do have some further questions for you uh, about the civilian workforce that uh, you talked about. But one thing I did want to hit before we got to that was kind of like, some somewhat same question for for you as an individual. So, yeah. uh, your direct supervisor is the CEO of Macog, uh, Fulberg Colonel uh, Ed Debish, who came on the cast here previously. Right. But you, I mean, for all intents and purposes, kind of have multiple. He's the one who writes your fit rep, uh, your your appraisal of performance. But you really have multiple bosses. You've got Macog, so that's how you kind of answer to the enterprise. But then all of your customers or the people that you're looking to uh, provide this good service, you know, warfighter focused service, right. service as you uh, described earlier, you got one MEF, so the first Marine Expeditionary Force, um, you've got the installation commanders, and then you've also got a, a very large training command out there and several other kind of unique one-off niche uh, customers in some cases with very, very different needs. They care about very different things. So, how do you balance not only doing all of those things, you know, the like, I've got eight bosses, Bob. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in addition to that, th they all want different things from you. So how did you end up personally, like thinking through how you wanted to attack this problem and then coming up with somewhat of a guiding principle of like, here's, here's what we do to enforce fairness so they are not just, for instance, taking care of the macaque all the time at the detriment of everyone else? Yeah, great question. So I will tell you that um, first and foremost, there's no one stakeholder that gets the nod every single time. I've got to make judgment calls every single day on who's getting the priority of effort. And sometimes that's not a popular opinion, but that's where it comes into play for having a commander that's responsible for it and that's continually making those judgment calls every day. Um, I'll give you one example. We had a major incidents response team that was stood up um, to reply to very bad um, issues we were having with latency, with all sorts of network issues. And so we had a number of service representatives, right, that were from the entire service that were supporting um, troubleshooting our network. And it was an all hands on deck, everyday focused effort. During that incident, we had the AAV training accident, if you remember that happening. It was the deadliest AAV training accident that had happened in Marine Corps history. Um, we lost nine Marines. We lost one sailor. And those actions happened off the coast of San Clemente. You know, so they didn't happen um, deployed in theater in Afghanistan. They happened off the coast of San Clemente. So I received a call from... Colonel Doug Hawkins, who's the one MEF G6. 
And he said, Juliet, we are standing up a crisis action team. They're going to be operating out of, you know, two different locations aboard Camp Pendleton. They're going to be replying back to the Marine Corps Operating Center um, and also doing the coordination with the families. And I need you to stop everything that you're doing on the network. Um, and during that time, so I, I, t- I called up Colonel Debish and I said, hey, sir, I know the MERT is important. We got to get a period of non-disruption on all networks immediately. And that needs to stay in place until we support those families being notified, all of the rescue and recovery actions that were happening um, off the coast of the San Clemente Island. Um, so we could really focus that effort. And every day I have to make different calls on who gets the priority of effort. And the only way to do that is to really be open, connected, and listening to the needs of all of the individuals. So I do regular touch points with the warfighter in the MEF, the division, the wing. Um, I do touch points with the installation commanders for what they have going on. Sometimes at Camp Pendleton, we have wildfires, right? And so I've got to know when I need to focus efforts toward the emergency operations center that could be housing all the personnel that are responding to a wildfire crisis. And that's the CG of MCI West who's responsible for that. So I just really have to be actively listening and receiving all of those cues and signals of what's going on across the entire operational grid day to day in order to meet the needs of everyone. And at the end of the day, um, we're all here to support the warfighter, but everybody understands that we all have different priorities and different areas that we're directly responsible for. So, uh, Juliet, I had a question that I wanted to run by you because you know, Ed was on here previously, CEO of Macog, mm-hmm. as we just talked about, where you are in this really unique position where you've got the responsibility not only of your IT operations, but also security and defense of those. So if we want to, you know, completely butcher a current buzzword, you have like sec def ops that you're running all day, every day, which is a new thing, quite frankly, for a unit like this and for the Marine Corps in general. So, I mean, what is your take on the the responsible way that you manage this? You know, we, we talked about managing your eight bosses in the true office spacey way, but now how do you manage three very critical pieces of this triangle of sec def ops? I'm going to, I'm going to double down on that right now, but that, that's got to be a challenge. It's got to be something that, you, that keeps you up at night. You, you know, so having responsibility for security, um, defense, and operations of the network, I think makes it a lot easier and is the only way to manage responsible oversight of your cyber operations because all three components have to be interwoven at every single layer. So do you um, find it easier now that you're managing all of them as opposed to relying on outside agencies? So my IT workforce that I adopted, none of them have ever been involved in defense. They have always been focused on current operations. So the spinning plates of just making sure the services are on, the lights are running, uh, water's running, the electric bill's been paid, you know, that's what they've been focused on. And now all of defense used to sit kind of behind a veil with Marine Corps Cyberspace Operations Group because they did that on behalf of the entire Marine Corps. Removing that layer of veil for what is truly going on in the defense portion opens up the warfighter and the individual, uh, the operators, to a different understanding of what the real threats are. So 
incorporating defense into my network posture also takes education and maturing across all of my IT workforce, that it's no longer about just making sure that the help desk tickets, you know, gets trouble shot from start to finish. It's okay, what's the genesis of that ticket? How does it potentially inform a different implication on operations that are happening and identifying if they are potentially malicious or um, results of, you know, coordinated efforts from our adversaries abroad? I'll, I'll tell you, General Reynolds, uh, Lieutenant General Reynolds, I, I will refer to her fairly often because she's such an excellent champion for information as the maneuver war space. And she really brings it home when she talks about needing to look at the network and remove the geographic boundaries, because those geographic boundaries really are false senses of security that remove from you the understanding of the threat. And all of our adversaries around the world have been operating on a singular aligned global effort for dominating in cyberspace operations. So the Marine Corps is really coming along to, I would call these our interwar years when we're seeing the information age kind of rise up and how it's being used as a weapon as opposed to, you know, the traditional weaponry that we're used to that's very kinetic. So your mission by definition differs a bunch from the MACOG in that aspect of you own your own defense. And you talked about how you've started to try and integrate that, but I'm really curious, how are you fostering that change in your IT workforce right now? I mean, you've got civilians, you've got, you know, everyone in camis all day. Yeah. How do you build that across this sort of mixed everything on the day-to-day -day basis? That's probably been one of my most difficult challenges. And I'll tell you, when I say I own my defense, you know, I own my defense, it's nested under MACOG, but it also is a new capability. So I have to build those capabilities as the Marine Corps is building those 1700 cyberspace operators, right? So I have a very small, I, <laughs> I have a very small number of them that are actually within the battalion right now. And that means that I need to take as a commander, everything that's happening in support of the enterprise under Colonel Debish, where he has those capabilities already existing, and then translate them to my workforce so that we're removing that veil from them and they understand how it will potentially feed into them. Um, we ran an exercise focused just on incidents response uh, and building out the communications link at the ops level for who do you call when there's been some sort of indication or warning of a breach on the network or impacts um, effects that could impact network operations based on an adversarial or malicious interruption or intrusion. So it really is about educating the workforce, but then also it's about the customer maturing their understanding of cyberspace operations because we're we as a service, that old problem. yeah, I mean, as a service, we're very much rooted to the, hey, the important thing is the raid that's going to take place on the island or the, you know, seize the objective, seize the hill. And the reality is that today's day and age functions very much in gray zone operations that are manipulating information in specific ways that are having impacts on global security. You look at the pandemic and the increase of um, attacks on networks or the increase of dark web crime that was going on or that continues to go on. We've moved on to our networks and adversaries, both named and unnamed, 
are very easily able to manipulate that and really have effects on economy, stabilization, security, you name it. It's not so much about raid the island. It's about, you know, maintaining security among your entire, you know, your entire population. So Juliet, thanks. Um, Just one of the answers that you gave Kyle when you were talking about the 17s kind of being embedded uh, in the network battalion, it just got me thinking. So, you know, we had Colonel Russell on before and he was talking about the MIG, right? And this, this new, what the MEF headquarters group had become, right? And so, you know, we mentioned a little bit earlier on this episode that, you know, you have all these customers, but your performance appraisal and your command relationship kind of bubbles up to the macabre uh, from that perspective. But could you talk about the other side of that coin? Like, how what's your relationship like, if any, with the MIG and the local customers that are organized inside of that organization, like 9th Com Battalion and its commander? Because I, I know you talked about it before about, you know, as a commander, prioritizing what work from which customer. But, but what is that actually like, like from a network battalion to the MIG, uh, if you could? Yeah, absolutely. So the MIG, the MEF Information Group, they have their own complement that are focused on the information environment. Their cyberspace operations traditionally focus around the expeditionary networks. So they are tied to the tactical networks that are stood up um, in distant regions where the MEF are operating, whether it's afloat, whether it's in the Indo-PACOM region, but they really are focused to those tactical networks. So the MIG, I consider us to have a very close relationship. Um, Coincidentally enough, we had DCO operators that were in the Western region supporting enterprise operations that literally were housed in the building across from where the MIG is at. Um, And the first time that I went over to meet them, because they fall under MACOG, uh, they're a contract workforce, I said, do you guys ever go over to the MIG uh, for their information um, standups? And they were like, what's a MIG? You know, and it's just because. And they're literally across the street. Literally across the street. But that's what I talk about when I talk about removing that veil of somebody else doing actions on your behalf and you never even knowing that those actions actions are happening on a day-to-day basis. My job really is to bridge that last tactical mile between the warfighter and the enterprise. So I take my 1700, I have him go to the MIG standoff briefs. He goes to the MEF G6 and he is building in with them a partnership so that we can share information across the entire spectrum to support operations in the continuum of the follow the sun model. There are some networks that will be a DMIXN or a deployed MIXN reliant on enterprise operations and some that are modeled on the tactical networks. And so having a good understanding of both of those is really important to keeping the warfighter and the supported commander fully informed on operations that are affecting his region or his area of responsibility. No, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, because we talked on the cast uh, previously about, you know, John McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, we talk about alignment, right? And talk about shared consciousness across similar operating units that kind of have seams and interfaces with each other. So, I mean, that, that's just awesome that you guys are integrated, you know, with almost an LNO, right, on right. a daily basis. That, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so um, I'll push the, the clutch and switch gears here for a second just uh, to kind of talk a little bit more about the leadership component 
um, of your responsibilities. So battalion command in the Marine Corps is a pretty big deal. Uh, so would you mind talking about battalion command and what it's like to go through that screening process, you know, a, as a potential leader of, a now seated in the organization that you were not only put in charge of to command, but had to stand up. But just that process in and of itself, I think the audience would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So battalion command is, is one of those, one of those benchmarks, you know, that really give you an indicator of where you are with your peer group. Um, but I say that with the same spirit that our peer group is so competitive and so invested in every single level. Um, to, to give you a better understanding, specifically for communications, because communications formations have not changed in over 50 years, there's very few opportunities for communicators to align. Um, so the network it, is that true? Yeah, fifty years, no change. Like, is, is your unit kind of the first change of that? It is. So the network battalion is the first change to a battalion communications formation outside of the traditional com battalion, com squadron, com company model that supports the MAGTAC. Whoa! But the good news on this one is no technology has changed in the last fifty years, so it's per- perfectly fine. <laughs> No, no. So just no. Listen, this rotary phone is going to change your life. <laughs> so, so, but opportunities for communicators to command within communications. Um, our selection rate on the board that I was selected on, I, I want to say it was thirteen percent for total opportunity. So it was, you know, it was literally three slots that were open for slating. And then outside of that, there were support billets. So whether it was a headquarters battalion or whether it was, you know, a a, uh, headquarters squadron, there were those opportunities, few and far between. But for communications battalion specifically, it was always the comm battalion, the comm squadron, um, and then the comm companies are at the field grade level. So competing for those very few spots is difficult because they traditionally draw them from folks who are coming from ground combat arms, um, comms positions. And those were not opened up to women until, you know, recently within the past eight years is when they were opened up to women. So even for women, I can think on my, my left hand, how many females have had operational communications battalions. That's General Nethercott. General Reynolds, um, General Shea now has the MLG, although it's not a comm battalion, it is an operational one, you know, so there's, there's very few, I can't think of any others that have been aligned. So now we have a few others, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pachinich, um, she is slated to take the comm battalion out in New York, a fantastic Marine officer. Um, and we just have a very talented group of peers. So when I was looking at that for my opportunity, I had to look at it and go, you know, out of the numerous highly qualified, highly talented Marine officers, I would be so grateful to get that opportunity. But my investments to the service don't stop if I don't get that opportunity extended to me. You know, so I had to really look at it and go, it might be your year. It might not be your year. It might be your, you know, there's a little bit of luck involved, but there's also investment in always taking the hard assignments, always taking the, you know, the 
geographic change, despite the fact that it may separate you from your family or it may not be convenient for things. And generally, the folks that do get slated to those command opportunities are the ones who, who really see the investment beyond the command opportunity, um, but just in whatever way the Marine Corps is going to wield them um, as a servant to the Marines and to the warfighter. No, thank you, Julia. I mean, I, I think what a testament of what I've heard uh, from people that get selected for command is is very similar in nature, right? It's about the people you lead, right? It's not about you. It's about the organization, how you can move it forward. And, and what's just amazing to see is, uh, as you mentioned, you know, I know you said you can count them on your left hand, but like the female Marine officers that have the opportunity to lead these technology organizations have been nothing short of phenomenal um, in, in my perspective. And especially just listening to what you've talked about in this episode, not only did you have the global pandemic on top of it, you had some personal issues with family members you were dealing through dealing with, and then you had to stand up this new battalion on top of being given battalion command. Like that's an easy thing to, to deal with anyways, right, out of, out of the gate. So uh, again, kudos to you. Uh, and I think my last question along this leadership line is, uh, outside of being selected for command of the network battalion, what did you do to prepare once you found out that you were going to become the commanding officer of a network battalion? Like any books, classes, qualifications or certifications you did prior to, prior to coming over and snapping in or anything you had wished you had done that you didn't get an opportunity to do? Um, so I had a shorter timeline than the other battalion commanders will. So they were slated a year out and they've had a year to, to kind of percolate in their minds how they were going to go about things. Um, I was slated in December and then cut over in March and the battalion stood up essentially, you know, very shortly after that. So I had a very short timeline to execute how I was going to approach it. And so I really had to get focused and specific on it. So the first thing that I did was I took my command philosophy and I took it out and I revisited, okay, how am I going to lead this battalion? How am I leading this organization that is organic to me, that's important to me across the technology, the people, you know, command really isn't about the technical widgets. It really is about um, how you foster positive growth and development, how you best serve the Marines and the warfighter and the individuals who serve for you. And it really is a servant position. So I started with my command philosophy. I reevaluated there. I did some tweaks to it. Um, then I went to my staff guidance. I published out some staff guidance on how I want my staff to function. And I also went back to being very calculated at how I was going to manage my time. Um, so I, I've shared before something that's different about me, about the other um, females that I've mentioned, is that there are not a lot of female officers that have families um, or large families at that. So I have an active duty husband who is also serving in battalion command right now. Um, and we have six children. Um, so we have six boys, right, that run the gamut. And those six boys, you know, I've got 28 years of service right now because I have a prior enlisted background. But my oldest son, he's actually 25. He is a programmer, phenomenally successful. We have great conversations about IT. He asks me about how to approach projects. Um, and then I call him up and I ask him how to approach workforce things. How can I get a message across? Uh, to folks that are in IT. This sounds amazing. It, it Literally is. amazing. It is. But then I, my younger five boys um, are 
between the ages of 12 and five. So I've got a 12 year old, I've got two twins that are 10 and a half going on 11. And then I've got an eight year old and a five year old. So I've got the whole gamut there outside of just my regular, you know, work assignments. And that's not traditional. Traditionally, Marine officers, females in particular, were kind of raised with this, choose one, choose your line of effort. Um, But I am very passionate about, you don't need to choose a line of effort, you need to prioritize your time and make sure that you're balancing all the requirements. So my day is sectored out into personal growth, family growth, professional growth, um, intellectual growth, and they're balanced. You know, I, I think I have four calendars where I am tracking very specific things every week. I love this. Seriously, from, in different places. From managing an entire battalion to a reinforced fire team at home, that's a big <laughs> yeah, deal. That, that, is, uh, that is pretty intense. Do you, do you think that your kind of rigid management of your time, was that more informed from your professional uh, experiences? Or do you think that kind of uh, both, you know, a, a parent, dual active duty parent and and the six kids, do you think that is probably the reason that has shaped this approach or a blend of the both? How, how do you think you got there? I, I actually think that it contributes to better leadership. When you have a life that specifically involves all those factors that every single person is dealing with, it gives you a different understanding of how to connect with individuals and what's important to them. I mean, I maintain on my site picture, what is the school closure status at every single location where I have individual employees? Um, I tell all of my employees and my Marines that I don't want them being the individual that comes in every day. I'm like, set aside two days of the week when you're helping specifically in your home with your kids' requirements if they're doing virtual learning or with the transportation requirements to get them to school. And I practice what I preach. Um, I sometimes will intentionally have my kids, you know, part of where they can see in the background so that my, my Marines and my workforce know that I'm not telling them or asking them for unrealistic expectations because I'm going along with those same things along with them. I have, I mean, right now I have five different school teachers um, for all five of the kids uh, and keeping up with when they have to log on, when they have to, you know, have assignments due, things like that. Those have to be managed and balanced along with my investment to Office 365, to keeping up with what's going on day to day. And keeping a good understanding across the board that all of those factors are important to me as a battalion commander, um, I think helps to allow people to be better invested in their mission. So for me specifically, it's not about having a rigid timeline. It's about having a disciplined timeline that it's well-rounded because there's some weeks when I'm very heavy focused in work. And there's some weeks when, you know, quite frankly, I've gotten four notices from school teachers that say that the kids haven't logged on at appropriate time um, or so-and-so is behind in their school assignments. And so maintaining a good uh, rhythm for making sure that all those things are, you know, properly executed is important for me as an individual, as a commander, um, and also keeps me in touch with the workforce. So just as important as that is my own personal investment. You know, I, I think as a leader, you can't just be hyper-focused on all the technical and tactical requirements of your job. 
You've got to be well-fed in your family life involvement and your own personal life involvement. So I'm also an equestrian. I compete um, in jumping and cross-country with horses. I've got three horses. And part of my regular battle rhythm is getting out to the barn because that feeds me um, in my personal time too. So I, I maintain a balance, but I know that there are some weeks when it's going to get askew in one way or the other. And I just need to focus more on another area, maybe that following week. So th- those are all the different ways that I think it helps an individual and a commander uh, maintain their, their good ability to function. And also with so many different people around you, both, you know, in, in the home with your children watching you and in the, in the workspace with the other Marines watching you, you know, the, the, the officers that you're reporting to you and your, your command structure, setting the example is something that doesn't necessarily get enough attention these days with that particular piece of time management. Mm-hmm. Like I, I always feel like I'm riding the chaos lightning of managing my time too, but you know, I get the emails from my kids' schools about the, whether they're absent or not, and, and if they're late on assignments, then it's just like stresses me the hell out. But it also is a situation of I've got to make sure that I carve out the time to do that too. And I know that my my kids see that example also. And I'm I'm double clicking on the fact that that is kick ass, and I fully support it. And yes, a thousand times, yes, manage your time and set the example for those around you in that way. Yeah, Kyle, I, I'm just going to add in one thing there too, Kyle and Julia, because. Uh, I'd be remiss to say this. So I I had the opportunity in my career, I want to say about three years ago, to listen to Colonel Brian P. McCoy, so the battalion commander for 3-4 on the march up uh, in 2003. And hey, that was my commanding officer at 7th Marines. I love that gentleman. So Kyle, you'll know exactly what what I'm about to say, but um, my regimental commander had set up um, a professional military education event where uh, Colonel McCoy came to talk. And he, he pulled me aside at the time I was in the reserve component and said, hey, uh, I want to give you a piece of advice. So whenever somebody like that um, <laughs> gives you a piece of advice, you double down on it. But uh, he told me, uh, my key to success as a battalion commander is exactly what Juliet is saying right now, which is vote with your time, right? So you can tell people to do stuff all day long as a leader, but if you actually physically show up somewhere that shows people what you prioritize as important, right? So, I, you know, Kyle said double click. I just want to again give you give give you kudos, Juliet, for just managing the the leadership um, challenge that you've had put in front of you. And uh, it just sounds like you're absolutely doing that. You're voting with your time. Yeah, I I do. Um, I started. I, so one of the unique things about my battalion is that all of my Marines are located at Camp Pendleton. And it's all civilians at the other locations. Ooh. Um, oh, interesting. Which means that my my reserve force, my nine one one force, right, the ones that I can call two four seven, they're all located at Camp Pendleton. So I started surge support teams, where I basically shoot out tiger teams on a regular basis to blend in with the civilians at each individual installation, um, and then start to understand the architecture for how we're supporting differently at a different base. Um, This past week, I went up to Bridgeport, California. Uh, We were working on some uh, layer two devices, refreshing. And so I went with the Marines um, and I said, okay, you know, you guys are working through it. You're not asking the civilians anything. I want you to work through it. You know, you're going to figure it out. You're going to talk to people. You're going to identify yourself, where you're from. Start to get, you know, this is your second home right now. Um, and they're like, okay, so after we finished uh, with all of the work, and they did a great job, um, the Mountain Warfare Training Center XO is like, hey, 
can we do something for you to help support you? And I was like, yeah, you can take us up to the ridge line um, of the Sierra Nevada mountains so I can do a PME up there with the Marines. And so I took the Marines up in a snowcat. Um, they had a driver for us, went up there to the ridge line of the Sierra Nevadas. And we just spent time talking about expeditionary communications and the mixen. Um, what's the future of it? What's the so what behind them knowing how to respond in each individual place and without having somebody to ask um, that has worked there for the past 15 years and having to work through those technical challenges. But it was a great way to kind of incorporate professional development along with technical execution of duties in different concepts of operations that we hadn't done before. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's definitely something where uh, the civilians listening to this cast who don't have military experience, I'm guessing that that's not a normal like corporate thing at Amazon. You like climb a mountain and then talk Probably about not. how the IT works. Probably not. Uh, so that definitely... <laughs> I never once did that at my time at Google. Rich, how about you? <laughs> uh, so you, this is the time of the cast when I say oh. I disagree. Right? So, oh, um, okay. So, anyhow, I will say, so there, there's a gentleman who uh, is very well known at Amazon on the retail side of the house. His name is uh, Dave Treadwell. So Dave would take his folks on something called the base camp event, right? So we'd go to a place uh, in the Cascade Mountains um, that was really nice. I mean, Amazon uh, rented out a, a resort area called Suncadia. But uh, long story short, I, I don't know if you've been to Twenty Nine Palms, but also uh, wonderful nice resort. Too, just saying, <laughs> wonderful, all expenses paid. You know what I, I mean? I Camp Wilson shirt multiple times, my friends. <laughs> so, uh, but having said that, um, no, I, I do think um, on on the civilian side of the house, I, I will put this plug in there and say that folks uh, who do truly value the leadership aspect in getting people bought into what the mission is outside of their technical contributions from a skill set perspective, they generally tend to do uh, offsites. Now, whether they're productive or not, it's a different story. Uh, but I'll just say, uh, first time ever, my civilian leader took me out on a three-mile mountain run in the cascade. So I'll give Dave that credit where credit's due, but back to you guys. For, for everyone listening at home, this is not normal from my personal experience being out in the civilian workforce. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Excellent. Well, since you're leaving that, I'll, I'll uh, grab it. Uh, Juliet, I want to follow up on a couple of things you mentioned. Uh, so I'm not certain that the the people listening to this will, will know that the female population in the Marine Corps is not what mirrors uh, normal America. So it's not 51% female and 49% male. It's uh, as of 2004, it was at a low of 6.1% and got as high uh, in, in 2020 as 8.6%. And give or take command and high level officer selections mirror pretty closely to that. And, and you mentioned kind of like your four roles of individual, spouse, parent, and commander. Uh, knowing that, you know, you are, you are in the less than 10%, did you feel like the, and you said you brought your family to events so that people could see these things. So they had the visible, visible indicators. Did you feel any additional pressure, uh, being in that role or did it kind of feel like, you know, uh, I have all these different things about me, but I actually have a bigger support system as a result of it. Like kind of which side did you end up on or maybe a little bit of both? Um, so, so again, I'll say that there are not a lot of senior female commanders that also have large families or dual active duty spouses. A lot of them make that choice. They say, you know, okay, I'm going to switch to the reserves or 
Um, I'm going to have my husband get out so he can support me. Um, or it's just gotten later in the career and they realized that they hadn't approached the family issue, didn't want to go through that. Um, so I am very outspoken. I take my, my role to really be a voice for a large group of folks that don't have a lot of a voice out there. Um, at the commander's conference, when they brought up, you know, all of the senior representative, all the, all the general officers to talk about specific programs. Um, I, I definitely used my opportunity to have a voice and, you know, mention things that I feel that we could do better as a service with in terms of supporting uh, women, supporting their challenging roles in, you know, whether it's pregnancy recovery, whether it's in uh, just lack of mentorship or, or individuals that don't reach out to them. And I'll tell you that I have a lot of very positive mentorship. Um, General Shea, I've mentioned her before. General Maylock, uh, I deployed with her when I was a lieutenant and she was a major. And I'm, I'm one that has always seen value in reaching out to other exceptional leadership when I see it. Um, and I'm not shy about that. I'm not some sort of social butterfly, um, but I certainly reach out when I see somebody demonstrating qualities that I want to have. And so General Maylock, she was a major, I was a lieutenant, we were forward deployed in Iraq, she worked in air communications. So not the same as just straight communications. Uh, but I saw just how she carried herself as a Marine officer. And I was like, ma'am, ma would you mind if I, you know, asked you questions? And she was like, uh, I, I guess not, you know, <laughs> I guess not. Um, kind of awkward. But I have been able to reach out to her throughout the years when I have come to a different crossroads of different situations or difficult situations and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or even times when I've, I've been uncertain about decisions that I've made. Um, and she's been a great resource. So while you do feel that you can definitely call upon uh, individuals, you, you also feel a responsibility for continuing to be that voice and be um, an advocate for other individuals that don't have that same level of leadership. Every time um, that I get asked if I want to sit on a board at headquarters Marine Corps, I always say yes. You know, that's going to be six weeks away or eight weeks away that you're sequestered in a room. Um, but I'm going to do that so that I can be the voice that's, you know, looking at the trends that maybe have hidden biases that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on unless you had experienced them or seen them firsthand for uh, your entire career. So there's definitely a responsibility there. Um, and I do a lot outside of my regular battalion command with uh, mentorship of women, um, with supporting the Artemis program in the MLG that's focused on pregnancy recovery, um, even just on talking to the young Lance corporals at the child daycare center um, when they're going in, hey, Maureen, where do you work? What do you do? What do you want to do after this? You know, and they're like, oh, wow, you're a lieutenant colonel. And you have like, you know, these crazy kids that are, are grabbing at your leg or, you know, throwing things at each other or whatever. Um, and it opens up the conversation that you can do both. And, you know, one does not preclude the other. So absolutely a sense of responsibility there. Awesome. Yeah. And, and, and 
thank you for just kind of addressing these things and talking to the Marines about it and, and working as an advocate. Uh, that That's an awesome perspective. Uh, so you also mentioned earlier about just sitting down and talking to your Marines about a lot of things, about the McSen and about leadership and things like that. Uh, e- even recently, we had a very big uh, thing come up. So uh, for those who don't know, we, we only make enlisted Marines two places, uh, Paris Island, South Carolina, where there are four uh, training battalions, three of which are male and one is female. And then at San Diego, where there are three battalions, all male. So if, if you were, you know, the kind of like wink, wink that, you know, you know, the Marine Corps is you would never ask an enlisted female Marine if, if they went to boot camp at San Diego. Well, maybe not anymore. Uh, February 12th, they integrated recruit training and they also did a integrated drill instructor class. Uh, is, is this something that you've talked to the Marines about and, uh, have they mentioned any thoughts about it or was, was there anything in particular or of significance, uh, that came out of those chats? Um, yeah. So the integration of women at MCRD San Diego, uh, was a big deal for two reasons. So first off, just changing the service level approach to how we were going to look at that, um, enlisted boot camp pipeline. Um, and I said myself, I would, you know, come from an enlisted background. So I enlisted, I spent my first 11 years on the enlisted side. I went through Paris Island, um, in that female recruit model in fourth battalion with them splitting it out to the West coast and putting some of those classes in there. It really does break that model of there being some illusion that we have different training requirements or different hardships that we're going through. Honestly, when I look at the enlisted model of how they train female recruits, they generally have, you'll start out with, let's say, 54, 60 in a, um, in a company, um, and then you have four drill instructors for that, right? Three green hats and then one black hat, your senior drill instructor. Um, and that generally whittles down to sometimes 30 or 40. So you got one person for every, you know every 10 individuals, that makes your focus of effort very different in terms of, you know, the male populations have a much larger, uh, more dense, there's a whole lot of room to kind of hide behind the, you know, the guy in front of you, whereas in the female ones are so small. Um, Nobody's hiding behind John for the record. Nobody's hiding. Nobody, you're all, it's, you get, you get that one-on-one mano-a-mano every single day, all day long. They had actually started integrating some of the females with the males in the classes um, over at Paris Island, but bringing them over into the West Coast, it just shatters that invisible barrier uh, that they can only be trained in one special place and with one group. But I'll tell you that it also impacted because MCRD San Diego is a base that I support. Um, And so the security of making sure that COVID was not compromising any of the training opportunities, either through my contract workforce or my civilian workforce that are there, became a very, a very keen eye of attention. I mean, I look at how many contractors are going in, how many civilians are going in, um, who they're being exposed to, because that population is on a very tight force preservation for making sure that there's no compromises to either the drill instructors or the support staff that are there. Uh, so supporting MCRD San Diego during that evolution changes the focus of how 
much I am focused on preserving the health and the security portion of my workforce that potentially are interacting with the user. If they're fixing a device or going out and doing a call to fix services at one location, um, I really got to make sure that they're, they're wired tight and that health preservation is maintained at the highest posture too. So both ways, you know, I had, I made sure that everybody knew it was happening. Um, the third level though, is that I know a lot of those individuals personally, and we're such a small group that a lot of us know that, you know, well, so-and-so went to DI school to support this, but that also meant that she left her family and her three kids behind, and she's going to be TAD for the next seven months to support this evolutions. Um, so there's a lot, you know, I know at a very personal level, the individuals involved with that and the amount of sacrifice that they're going through personally to support that evolution. So it, it's good growth and development to remove those barriers um, that allow that this false sense of thinking that there's some sort of difference in how we're training or what our requirements are. Awesome. That, that, was a, that was a great answer. I love that. I always just tease the San Diego uh, folks because they get to go to baseball games and I could never fathom that. Um, Wait, you mean and climb actual hills? There's blah, blah, that. Blah, 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 blah. I'm just, just saying. Yeah. Ne- ne- never went to a baseball game, but, Roger but that. did a whole lot more hill intervals than you. I'm, I'm ready for hill running anytime. <laughs> All right. But so, not handstand uh, walking for the record. Oh, too, too soon. Too, too soon. soon. Too soon. Um, okay. Anyways, hashtag CrossFit open. Uh, so uh, Kyle, we are at the point in the cast where you pull out Kyle's hot take. All right. Hit us with it. I, I've been noodling on this through the, the entire cast because I feel like I could take almost anything that Juliet has said on here and turn it into a hot take. But but I want to focus on one thing. Uh, there are a number of things that we have talked about, Juliet, in your in your personal life and your professional life in, over the last hour. And I want to just call out to everybody who's listening on this cast. Uh, discipline is a big deal. And we talk about it a lot in the military. And I think that it doesn't get talked about enough in the you know, outside civilian world, especially in IT. But I want to just call out that when we asked Juliet what, you know, how she prepared for the work of getting like a, what was it, like a six-week notice that you were going to stand up a brand new battalion or something like that? There was no hesitation. She knew exactly how she got that done. And it was very simple. Yeah, there was like a system that she has used for decades to run her life because that's what it takes to be so high functioning with a large family and personal goals and professional goals and still making time for yourself and education and all that. And I'm just imagine Rich's knife hand superimposed over my image right now of please just have a system. I don't I don't care how efficient or not efficient it is. But if you have a system, you're already on the road towards trying to figure out how to make things more efficient in your own life so that you can enjoy the things you want to enjoy and don't get buried along the way in a variety of ways. So just uh be like Juliet, have a system, be disciplined, kick ass, tick names, chew bubblegum. That's my hot take today. Love it. Rich, uh, over to you. My only uh, addition to Kyle's hot take is Juliet mentioned multiple times interpersonal skills are what is required of leaders. Um, and I think that goes in all levels. So uh, holding people account- to account for what their qualifications and certifications and training is, huge. But more importantly, after you do that, be a human being and recognize humans are going to human and you need to make that sure that you bring along the hearts and minds on top of the prowess, whether it's physical prowess for Marines or technical prowess for both Marines and, and civilians. Thanks. And Juliet, any uh, final thoughts uh, before we sign off here? 
No, I would just say that I appreciate the conversation and the dialogue on all aspects of it. I mean, I think it's healthy and it's constructive for both the listener um, and the individuals participating when you're just thinking about the simple things that you're doing every way, every day that aren't necessarily so simple and definitely require an approach or a system um, like Kyle had talked about or you know, they require discipline and caring about the humans at the, you know, the very base layer of like, like Rich talked about. And those really are the most important things, whether you're in IT or any other field. So hopefully my command philosophy, you know, rung true, that I really do approach things in a holistic way. And I think that individuals are better in both the professional and in the life way of living every day um, when they're doing that. Awesome. And, and thanks again uh, for coming on the cast. And dear listeners, thanks for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter by going to at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson. Marketing support is provided by Hector Alejandro. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review and some sort of comment, any sort of comment. Thanks all and have a good one.